0: Welcome to The Altruistic Libertarian, Advocate for a Generally Free Society. I'm Anthony Wheeler and today we begin a segment on Victimless Vices. Why do laws exist that prohibit behavior that harms no one other than perhaps the one performing their prohibited behavior? While it's perfectly reasonable to condemn such behavior from the pulpit or denounce it in editorials and write novels that show how self-destructive such behavior can be, Why do we insist on using the violent power of the state to prevent it? The cost of doing so is horrendous in terms of prison time, non-productive, plus the cost to to incarcerate, full-time agents working against it, the undermining of people's respect for the law, and intra-community violence, drug violence, murdered prostitutes. On the one hand, people feel like they have to tell others how to live, what to do, and what to avoid using the power of government to enforce their moral standards. Quote, but once the principle is admitted that it is a duty of government to protect the individual against his own foolishness no serious objections can be advanced against further encroachments. Unquote. For those advocating a genuinely free society this stands as a basic point of departure between those people who demand moral conformance through the power of the state and those who wish to remain unfettered by the moral laws of others. In a genuinely free society, the individual remains responsible for themselves. They don't seek or willingly accept the forceful intrusion upon their lives. Let the moral citizens care for their own ethical lives, says the individualist. Let them mind their own damn business. On the other hand, there are social engineers who speak of the great society or seek some social construct that meets an ideal, one based on the nuclear family, say, or one that limits certain activities to the healthy and wise. But all such referrals to a healthy society must be done with the explicit understanding that such collective nomenclature is simply shorthand for quantities of individuals that actually feel, think, and act as opposed to the collective abstractions, quote, I believe that this view which regards social collectivity such as society or the state or any particular social institution or phenomenon it as in any sense more objective than the intelligible actions of the individual is sheer illusion, For those who worry about the decline of society that might arise from human vices, they should consider that society and cultural in general is far hardier than they may believe. Yes, the human soul can be crushed by oppressive regimes or starved by brutal natural conditions. But given a minimum of structure and simple freedom, people will overcome their situation and make something of themselves. This is because, and I quote, The stability of our personal lives rests upon a consensus of perception and memory that in fact has no guarantee. We are solipsists who, in an uneasy conjunction with other solipsists, construct a society and a shared world." This shared world, to the extent that it exists, will endure the sharp blades of actuality in the same way a wave remains unchanged by a thrust sword. The true dangers to the human spirit are posed by an aggressive state, National Socialism, for example, or Stalinism, or Mao's Great Leap Forward. And an asteroid on a collision course with Earth, or a super volcano like the one brewing under Yellowstone. Human civilization will not founder because of gay marriage, promiscuity, drugs, long hair, rock music, strip malls, pornography, daytime TV, poor education, mind-altering drugs, illegal aliens, Democrats, Harley Davidsons, soap operas, Republicans, reality TV, or any of a thousand cultural activities, icons, personalities, fads, or trends. None of these indicate society's decay, but in fact speak largely to its creative resilience, flexibility, and hardiness. Social critics have decried every age, complained about the degenerate youth, lack of respect for this institution or or that custom, hailed the coming apocalypse, expressed disgust with just about everything. According to the social critics, the world has been in decline since the golden age of Athens. And even then, Plato and Aristophanes, among others, were highly critical of the perfect civilization. In fact, the same polis executed one of the most exceptional men in human intellectual history. History is filled with countless expressions of imminent destruction and dire warnings of catastrophic cultural failure. If they're right, we must be approaching the lower reaches of Dante's famous inferno. Does it really matter what some people believe is happening with society as a whole? Society is simply an abstraction used to support one perspective or another. As Lee Smolin, a particle physicist, writes and I quote, when people speak of political change they often speak of a rearrangement of the relationship between the individual and society. This is a euphemism for society is an abstract concept concept that refers only to those human beings that are alive in one time and place. This is not to say that there are not hierarchies of organization in human society, but each interaction I have with any level of this hierarchy hierarchy is really only an interaction with one or more people, even if the exchanges may be increasingly scripted as a hierarchy is ascended. What is then rearranged when society evolves is nothing more than the myriad of relationships between individual human beings." The term society is dangerously misleading and largely meaningless. Any individual living within a reasonably civilized nation outside a war zone and sometimes within can cultivate themselves or choose not to within any given age in society, those people capable of living an autonomous life, generally a small minority will do so. The rest is just statistics. On the other hand, and I quote, does the cry in the tragic play muffle, even blot out the cry in the street? I confess to finding this an obsessive, almost maddening question. Coleridge thought so. Poetry excites us to artificial feelings, makes us callous to real ones. Most people who pay attention to such cries, the same people who watch the daily news and, and read the editorials, get indignant once in a while, perhaps a bit angry, then go on about their business. Tomorrow, there will be another cry in a different street as a new cycle turns another new day and nothing will have changed. Enacting a genuinely free society would constitute real change and completely undermine organized crime, thereby removing the economic basis for violent gangs. Most organized crime and full-time street gangs make money on crimes without victims, recreational drugs, prostitution, and gambling. In most instances, every transaction leaves both parties satisfied, generating no overt complaints. One party has something to sell, drugs, sex, or a service to offer, card game, roulette, while the other party wishes to purchase or play. The individual transaction increases wealth in the same way the farmer and the cobbler benefit when they trade three chickens for a pair of shoes. Alternatively, crimes against people and property, rape, murder, burglary, fraud, creates an angry and potentially violent victim or victim's relatives. Such transactions are far more dangerous for the perpetrator both during the event and long after as it leaves an aggrieved party. Nobody wants to be raped, not even rapists. Nobody wants to be murdered, not even killers. And everyone hates to be robbed, even burglars. Making a living performing such activities is dangerous and rarely makes for a lengthy career. For example, as a college student I was robbed at gunpoint while working in a gas station. Two weeks later an armed gas station attendant shot the same man to death, all for a small amount of cash. Crime against people and property is difficult to perpetuate and therefore less likely to attract organized crime or street gangs. In fact, Most of the violence associated with organized crime and street gangs are territorially based, not economic. Such violence would become unnecessary should the prohibitions against victimless vices be abolished. If these illicit activities became fully legal, as they would in a genuinely free society, those providing the products and services would operate as legitimate businesses, liable to the same regulations and tax laws as any other free enterprise. Not only would this provide general benefits to society as a whole in terms of increased revenue and safer streets, it would transform a majority of citizens into fully lawful ones as opposed to the large percentage today that ignore or avoid the laws as written. Gambling. Why is gambling illegal? Because some people cannot control themselves and gamble away their family's livelihood? If so, the responsibility for such behavior should be directly on the individual and not the state. Or is gambling basically immoral and therefore prohibited? If the latter, why does the government sponsor lotteries that promise huge winnings at horrible odds? As a tax form, it's terribly regressive as the poor spend a relatively large part of their meager income on such futile dreams. As for the winnings, they are never what they announce. The cash value is always much lower than it advertised and the option to take annual payments doesn't equate to the winning total. For example, $100,000 a year for the next 10 years does not equal million It is actually just over $700,000 at 6%. After all that, the winnings are taxable as normal income, once again reducing the value of the prize. On the one hand, the lottery is so lopsided against players, it should be considered fraud. On the other hand, if gambling was generally legalized, as it should be, the state lotteries would soon be out of business, pushed aside by games far more equitable. Nobody would play the state lotteries and prizes would diminish to insignificant levels. Perhaps that's why gambling remains illegal. Well, that concludes our show for today. In the next episode, we continue our sequence on victimless vices, specifically drugs. Until then, peace.